Well, hello and welcome to the Beartown Road Alliance Church Podcast. My name is Pastor Isaac, and I have the really awesome privilege of introducing to you the message from January 31st titled, Behavior Flows from the Heart. Well, our behavior flows directly from our heart. Every emotion from anger to deep joy is connected to the state of our heart. Many of us feel like we're constantly running on an empty tank and are not sure how to live any other way. Our hearts are just in disarray. Well, what if there was a way to change this dynamic? Well, today we're going to discuss how we can not only live with a full tank, but do it with joy in our hearts. This message comes from Pastor Adam. So would you join me in listening in here on the sermon from January 31st, titled, Behavior Flows from the Heart. Well, good morning. How are you all? That's pretty weak. I know it's nine. You'll be two opportunities for you to respond during the service. So this is one. So one more time. How are we doing? Good. All right. Well, that's pretty good. Hey, I was talking with Pastor Isaac this week, and he mentioned something to me that actually lifted my spirits a little bit. See, I was gone for a couple of weeks with my family, and he said, you know, Adam, there were people in my group that missed you. There's people at this church that noticed you were gone, and some of you were like, yeah, that was me. And for other of you, they were like, what are they talking about? <laughs> and yeah, those of you, you hurt my feelings a little bit. I just, I just want to lay that out there. No, so we, my family and I, were able to go, for, go to Florida over the past couple of weeks. And yeah, it, it's as awesome as it sounds. Florida in January, as opposed to upstate New York, is fantastic, right? We were able to get in a pool. It kind of had a little heated. When I say me, I mean our children, because me and April aren't getting in the pool when it's 75 degrees outside. But we were able, we were afforded an opportunity to spend some time with April's family in Florida, which for us was a big deal. You see, a lot of you don't know this, but my wife is actually Canadian. And because of the virus, we're not able to spend any time with her family. We haven't seen any of them for quite some time. And her father was sick and tired of the weather and not being able to see his grandchildren. So he calls us one day. He says, hey, if I rent a place in Florida, would you guys drive down and see us? And, you know, April, of course, is like, well, I got to check with the husband. And, you know, we got to make sure everything's okay and that'll be fine. To where she hangs up the phone and we have a conversation and come to the conclusion pretty quickly that we're going to Florida. Right? Yeah, I mean, we're going to make this work. The ability to go down and spend some time with them is what we decided to do. So we load the kids in the car and we drive to Florida. Now, the trip was even better for me. And this is an opportunity for me to brag on my wife. So I'm going to take advantage of it. You see, to, when we were in Florida, I was able to do one extra thing that my family didn't have the opportunity to do. And to let you in on that, I have to go back to Christmas Day. So it's Christmas and we're opening presents. And I had wanted a pair of ski gloves. But I was too frugal, some people might say cheap, to buy a new pair because there was a hole in mine and the hole didn't go all the way through. So my hands got cold, but they met their functionality purpose of what I needed them for. So I'm opening this box underneath the tree and I get in there and I see a pair of black ski gloves. And I'm thinking, man, this is great. But but there's two things that you have to do when you get a present that you wanted, but somebody else bought for you. I mean, I know some of you can relate to this, right? You look at it and you got to appear thankful but you're inspecting it to make sure it's the right one, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm like, are these the gloves I wanted? Or am I going to have to have one of those awkward conversations where it's like, babe, I am so thankful, but this just isn't going to work. So we're, we're talking and looking, and I'm like, these are it. And I look over to her, and I say, April, thank you. And she looks back at me like I kind of haven't given her the thanks that she needed. And she says, Adam, look in the box. 
So I look in the box and I see a white piece of paper and I pull it out thinking it's the receipt, but it's not. It's actually a flight itinerary to take me from Florida to Salt Lake City where my cousin lives, and I know instantly that my wife has arranged an opportunity for me to go skiing in a place that I've never been able to, but I absolutely want to. She's probably sick and tired of me hearing say, oh, how great would it be to go to California, or California, BC, or Utah. So she has arranged for me to be able to go and spend time with my cousin skiing. So Christmas was awesome for me. And secondary thing, April's birthday is coming up in March, so I'm going to need every one of you to engage her in the room and find out something that she really wants, because i got to hit this one out of the park. So if you guys could come and help your pastor, I would really, really appreciate it. Right? But isn't it awesome when life's like that? Right? You've just gone on vacation, or something's happened, and your spirits are just lifted. You're riding on cloud nine, and when we're in those moments, we tend to treat people a little better than maybe we otherwise would. Right? You're a little kinder to them. You actually give them more grace than they deserve. And the reason for that is because you're just in a really good spirit yourself. But for a lot of life, we don't find ourselves in circumstances like that. If we're being truthful, especially over this past year, most of us would acknowledge that we don't feel that same level of fulfillment or enjoyment as I just described to you from being able to ski and spend time in Florida. Most of the time, if we're honest, we feel like our tank is pretty well empty. And if it's not empty, it's running on fumes. And for a majority of what seems like our life, we are puttering and puttering from one thing into the next. When I was in high school, my brother had this piece of junk, CJ7 Jeep. It was a 79, it was a rust bucket, but we loved it. We loved it because of the freedom it offered us to go places. I remember when we would drive to school in the winter, you had to dress as if you were going skiing because the windows weren't really sealed and they would vibrate back and forth and the air would blow in. I had to bring paper towels with us every day to be the defroster on the inside. Yeah, and on occasion, I'd have to reach out around the outside and defrost the vehicle because he could see. But we didn't care. We didn't care because the Jeep allowed us to do things. And I remember there was a summer day where we had gotten permission from our parents to do something. You know, we submitted the 2,000-word essay telling our parents where we would be, who we would be with, what they would be doing, and they approved us to go out on this endeavor. We had a good time, came home, and as we're driving back to their house, we're on this country road in Pennsylvania, two lanes, and all of a sudden the Jeep has to come to a stop because traffic is built up. Nobody's coming this way, nobody's going that way, so we sit idling for about 45 minutes. And after some time, we're like, we better turn the vehicle off because we don't know how much longer we're going to be here. Well, there was one other problem with the Jeep that we encountered during this endeavor. You see, the gas gauge didn't work. And knowing the gas gauge didn't work, every time we would fill it, we would check the odometer, and every 200 miles, we would fill the tank. But you see, there was a problem for us. We were sitting idly, and the vehicle was running, which meant the tank was going down even though that odometer meter never changed. So when traffic finally lit up, we started the Jeep and we went on our drive home. And about three or four miles from home, we started to putter, putter, putter and came to a complete stop because the vehicle had run out of gas. Now, for a lot of you young ones, you're like, yeah, pick up the phone and call. But when I was a teenager in the 90s, you couldn't just pick up your cell phone and call somebody. 
right? And the other determining factor is my nearest neighbors were Amish people. Yeah, a lot of you laugh because Amish people don't have phones. So we had to hoof it to somebody's house where we use this thing called, catch me now, a landline. And the landline was actually connected to the wall. So I couldn't even walk very far from the phone when he called mom and dad. You guys Google it. You'll see what I'm talking about. But we eventually got mom and dad. They came, they picked us up, and we were able to get home. But you see, the thing I want to communicate to you today is you and I are very much like our vehicles. We don't run real well on empty. See, when all you have are fumes to get you through and throughout your day, you're not going to do so well. And the reason that we don't run well on empty is twofold. See, there are definitely times where life is hard. I do not want to make light of that. Whatever your situation is in the room, as many of you know, my family's had to experience this as well during this year. And there are times where you just don't get the gas mileage out of your body that you expect to. But there's another reason that this is hard, and I think this is particularly more important. It's the more important reason. You see, we run on fumes because we don't fill our tanks. We aren't in a state, in a presence, in a being where we are constantly tapping into a source that can refill our tanks so we can live in a certain way. But there's a true reality to this. I know that there is a way for you and a way for me to consistently fill our tanks so that we can live out of an overflow rather than running on fumes. And to make that point, I'd like to take a look at the passage of Scripture today. So if you've got your Bibles or your phones, go ahead, grab them, turn to Acts chapter 16. If you are not normally a turner, I would encourage you to do that because I think there's a little bit of extra power when we're actually looking down at the verses. But if you don't have them, we'll have it here on the TV and up on the computer or up on the screen. But let me set the stage for you, this mic is killing me today, of what's going on. So Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 18, we're going to come across these two men named Paul and Silas. And for some of you, those names are familiar, but for those of you who aren't, Paul is actually probably the greatest missionary in the early church other than Jesus himself. Originally, he hated Christ. His whole life's mission was to find people who profess Jesus, put him in jail, or kill them. And at some point, he's on a road to do just that, where he sees a vision from heaven, this light comes down and pierces him, and Jesus himself communicates to Paul, and it transforms who he is. And because of this, Paul actually shifts, and his whole life becomes about telling people of Jesus. And in this interaction, that's what he's doing. He's going to a town in Greece called Macedonia, and he's among the people, and we pick up the interaction in Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 18, and this is what happens. It says, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. As we, she followed Paul and Silas, no, go ahead, flip over. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So Paul and Silas are in town, and there's this little girl that's following them. And there's something different about her. The text tells us that she has this demonic presence, this demonic spirit, and the way that affects her is she's able to look at people and tell them things about themselves. 
She can look into their situations. Maybe she can communicate some kind of future occurrences. We're not exactly sure, but we know the text tells us that she has got a demonic presence, and that presence allows her owners to make a significant amount of money off of her. She engages people in such a way that they can profit off of this thing that is a burden to this girl. And she finds Paul and Silas, and we're told for about two days she follows them. And as she's following them around, she is communicating something about them. She says, these two men are telling you the way to be saved. They're letting you know how you can actually get to heaven, which for me is really a strange thing that this demonic presence is actually having this girl communicate that message. And we're not really cued into the why of it, but what we do know is Paul is getting annoyed. Paul's had enough. After two days of this, he says, you know, I'm kind of done. And I think a lot of you parents can absolutely relate to Paul. I know April and I could. You see, when we were on that trip to Florida, we had two days in the car and two days back to get there, averaging about 10, 11 hours a day. And every single one of you parents know the phrase that my children uttered to me 4,762 times during that trip. What did they want to know? Oh my goodness, no! We are not there yet! We've been traveling for 45 minutes, I haven't even stopped for breakfast! I don't know how many times I had to threaten corporal punishment and the loss of snacks to get them to stop saying, are we there yet? But if you've ever had that encounter, you know what it's like to be annoyed. You can relate to how Paul is feeling this. Verse 18 actually tells us that Paul was greatly annoyed. So Paul looks at this girl. He turns around and he engages her. And he notices, he sees somehow that there is this demonic force that is oppressing her. There's this demonic force that is a force in her life, and he decides it doesn't need to be there any longer. And he turns to her and he says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And instantly, we're told the demon leaves the little girl. And I would think, if I was there, if I was one of the people that saw this happen, I would be excited I'd be excited for this little girl who no longer has to have this burden on her life. I would want to know where the power came from. How are these men able to have this ability where the demonic forces are subject to the thing they have to say? But as we look at the text, that's not what happens. As we scroll through the text, we find out in verse 19 that the people are not pleased with Paul and Silas, and this is what happens. Verse 19 says, they grabbed Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And they did that for one reason. They were angry. See, the men that made a livelihood or an income off of the subjugation of this little girl were upset. The text tells us that they said, these guys are here in our town. They're teaching customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to listen to. And we would think because of our modern judicial system that this is where Paul and Silas get a defense. They're able to say, hey, hold on one second. Let me talk to you. Let me tell you what really happened. But that's not the case. The judges actually say, yep, good enough for me. And they take Paul and Silas and they string them up. And the men grab rods and they beat them. 
Paul and Silas's reward for taking care of this little girl was to receive a beating. And then they were taken to jail. The Bible tells us they took them to the innermost parts of the jail where they chained their hands and feet up into stocks in an uncomfortable position in a dirty, dank, nasty jail cell. And that is where they are left. And again, I stopped to think, what would I have felt if I had been Paul? When I step back from the story, I think, man, I might have been upset. Not just upset with the people that did this to me. I might have looked at God and said, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Why would you let this happen to me? Do you know what I've given up? Do you know what I have said no to so I can be on the road following you and doing the thing you wanted? And the thing I got, the thing I get for releasing a little girl is beaten and thrown into the innermost parts of the jail. But the amazing thing is the Bible cues us in to how Paul and Silas react. And it is massively different from what I just described to you. Verse 25 says this, it was late. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. This is absolutely incredible. It is mind-blowing to me that Paul and Silas could endure what they just endured, be thrown to the back of the jail, and as they are in there, they're saying, you are great. And they're being a witness to the men in jail. They heard what happened to Paul and Silas. I'm sure they knew why they were in there. And they're thinking, how are these guys able to respond the way that they are responding? And the reason that is, is I believe Paul and Silas understood something practically. And they put it into practice. And it's a truth that if we are honest, eludes most of us, if not all of us, in some capacity today. See, Paul and Silas were operating on a full tank. They weren't running on fumes. There was an overflow pouring out of them, and that's how they were able to respond the way they did in this situation. And something else Paul and Silas understood was their, their behavior or how they would respond to what life threw at them flew directly from their heart. You see, the state of their heart would dictate how they would respond to the situations that were presented to them. And because they knew that, they spent a lot of time pouring into their hearts. They spent time connected to the one and to the source who could put them in a situation where this could happen and they would be okay with it. You see, your behavior, my behavior... The way we act flows directly from your hearts. Your behavior is a direct picture of what is happening inside of here. I know in our society, and I'm guilty of this, many of us are far more concerned with behaviors than we are with the state of our hearts. This plays out in the life of my children, right? Be honest. I see them do something. I see them act or react in a certain way. And I am far more concerned about their behavior than I am the state of their heart. When the question I should be asking is, what is driving their heart that makes them act out in such a way? You see, when our children act out, when we act out, a lot of times we look at the behavior when what we should be doing is stopping and considering the position of our hearts. Proverbs 4.23 says this. It's so huge for this topic. Above all else, 
guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Man, that's worth repeating. Above all else, the most important thing is to guard your heart because everything you do flows from it. See, Paul and Silas had found a way to tap in to, unlimited, to an unlimited source to fill their hearts. That's why they could pour out into others. And when things like this happened, it didn't affect them in the way we would assume it had. You see, we need to be concerned about the state of our hearts because everything about us, every behavior flows from it. Those moments of rage and intense anger, all the way down to the times where you are joyful and glad, all flow from your heart and they are predicated on, the bit, on what is going on inside of it. You see, we need to be aware of this. We need to be cognizant of this, not just for ourselves, but so that we can teach our children, so we can look at the people around us and understand the attitude of their heart and why that is dictating a certain behavior. Here's another reason you will need to know the state of your heart. The state of your heart is the source of frustration in your home. If you are upset, if you are angry, the state of your heart is the primary driver of that. Not somebody else. Not their attitude. Not the thing that they've done wrong, but rather the state of your heart. Our hearts are the source of blaming, anger. All of those negative things, all of those negative emotions come from the state of your heart. But by the same token, so do all of the good. So does the joy. So does the thankfulness, some from the, so does the gratefulness. All of those emotions, all of those feelings flow from your heart. And if we can wrap our heads around this idea that your heart is the wellspring and everything that you do pours out of it, it has a dramatic effect to change us and then allow us not to be so concerned with the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Because they won't be what dictate our behavior. Our heart will be the thing that dictates our behavior. Matthew 15, 18 says this. It says, the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. We all know this, right? You, you can communicate something in two totally different manners with the exact same words, and it will mean a dramatically different thing. How you say something has power. Let me give you two examples, and these are pertinent for me because Number one relationships after Jesus is my spouse and my children. If I come home and April has prepared something and I say this, the way I do it is going to have a dramatic effect. Wow, honey, this is what's for dinner? Let's try another one. Wow, honey, this is what's for dinner? It's funny, but it's also not. How about my kids? Take Lincoln, he's the oldest. Lincoln, I can't believe you think that. Come here. Let me help you. Lincoln, I can't believe that you think that. Come here. Let me help you. The exact same phrase has the ability to build up or it has the power to destroy. And the state of my heart is going to dictate what comes out. In my family, we drink a lot of juices, a lot of freshly squeezed juices. And as I say that, a lot of you are like, oh, I love freshly squeezed juice. And so do I. Fruit juice. 
in the fall, we get apples and we do like cider and oranges and all these different combinations. And I love the fruit juice. But my family also drinks a lot of other types of juices. Vegetable juices. I don't like vegetable juices. Do you guys remember when V8 came out with those fusion splashes? And they're like, we're going to give you fruit juice, and we're going to put a serving of vegetables in it, and the fruit will compensate so your kids will drink it. They lied. I can taste the vegetable juice. To me, I feel like it's diet fruit juice. Not in that it's low calorie, but it's like diet vegetable. I can still taste it. It doesn't work for me. But in our household, we drink a lot of vegetable juice. I don't drink as much. The kids in April do. They tend to really enjoy it. They love it. But actually, there was a season in my life for a year and a half, I drank 16 ounces of freshly squeezed celery juice every day, first thing in the morning on an empty stomach. And I want to tell you, it sounds as much fun as it is. <laughs> I hate celery juice. It's disgusting. To describe it to you, it has like a mild saltwater taste, but it's also sweet and there's a dirtiness to it. Yeah, and sometimes it's more dirty, and you drink it, and you, like, I mean, really. Like, it's never gonna come back out. It wouldn't do that for you. It wouldn't get out of your body, right? But I have to rinse my mouth out and go, but you see, there was a reason I drank that celery juice, and I'm gonna, again, brag on my wife. See, there was a season in my life for about two years where my entire upper torso was covered in hives and agitation. My skin was awful. It drove me bananas. I went to the doctors. Doctors, they had no idea what was wrong with me. It got so bad that they sent me to a specialist because they thought I had cancer. They're like, one of the things that's driving this has to be cancer or something different in his body, which was not what it was. And I was frustrated because they couldn't figure everything out. But then my wife decided to research it on her own, and she came up with a plethora of things. But one of the things that helped me dramatically was drinking this celery juice every day. And you see, for that time of a year and a half, when I took in that volume, it started to change the complexion of my skin. What was before agitated started to get better. The dryness, the irritation started to go away until it was virtually all gone. And the reason I tell you that story is because that physical reality of me taking in celery juice and having a good effect on my outside holds very true for your heart as well. What fills your heart the things that you take in will dictate the attitude and the behaviors that come out of you. You cannot get around this. Because of that, I want to take a moment and talk to you about what I believe is one of the biggest problems, one of the biggest issues that affects what flows out of our hearts. See, we look to the wrong things to fill us up. I don't know what that is for every one of you, but I bet as you're sitting there thinking of it, you can think about what you look to to fill up your heart. But I do believe, for most of us, possibly the number one thing that we look to that we shouldn't is our family, more particularly our spouse. We look to our spouse as to be the thing that fill us up rather than God. And here's the problem with that. You and your spouse have a limited supply. You only have so much. And there are things in life that require us to pour into. We all have children, right? Or a lot of us do. If you don't have children, you have job. You got more than one child. You got three, four, five children. Right? And what does it do? It drains you. 
So when you look to your spouse to fill you up, you are going to create a huge source of frustration in your marriage. You see, your spouse cannot fill you up. Living like that drains the relationship, right? You can pass it to her, and she can pass it back to you, but nobody's getting filled. The water level is the same. It's just distributed differently among the people. And this is what happens. I think I'll do A, B, and C for April. And now that I've done A, B, and C from her, I expect D, E, and F. And if we're honest, H-I-J-K-L-M-N-O-P. Right? That's how we live. But here's the problem. When your spouse is your source of life, you will also blame him and her as the source of your problems. That's worth saying again. When your spouse is the source of life, you will blame him or her as the source of your problems. And when you set your spouse up to be the source, you've also made them the solution. And can I tell you, that is a burden that they are not capable, nor were they created to bear. So what do we do? If we believe, if we understand that our spouse cannot be the thing that fills us up because they are truly a limited supply, what is it that we should do? Well, I'm going to tell you. Whatever it is that you have made the source, you need to fire them. You need to remove them from the position that you have placed them in. If it is your spouse, if it is your children, if it is your parents, if it is your job, whatever it is, you need to give them a pink slip and you need to relieve them from the duty because they are not capable of carrying that out for you. There is only one thing that is capable of being your source. Jesus wants to be the source of your life. And only when Jesus becomes the source will you be able to find fulfillment. And here's the other thing. When you tap into Jesus, it's an unlimited supply. It's a supply that pours into you. And when you approach life like that, you will find yourself thinking differently about everything. Let me give you a simple example serving. You see, when Jesus is the source of my life, I know that I'm going to be replenished. So when I serve my wife, or when I serve my children, I'm not looking for her to fill me up. I don't need her to pour back into me because I know Jesus will be my source and he will fill me up. Every time I ask, every time I need it, Jesus will come and he will fill your cup. And when you live like that, you will treat things differently. You see, your spouse and your children, you will realize they are a gift from God, not the source of your life. And you will treat them as such. Your work will become the source of your income, not the source of your life. And you will treat it that way. So knowing and understanding this, there are a couple of action steps that we all need to take. The first thing you need to do is fire the person or the thing that you have made the source of your life, and you need to replace them with Jesus. I just wonder, I mean, ask yourself this question. What would happen if I did that? What would happen in my life, in my relationships, if I didn't put that burden on a person or a thing and I gave it to Jesus instead? Would life get different? 
Do you think it might affect your relationships? It might change things? Because let me tell you what Jesus says or thinks, excuse me, about the subject, not says. This is what Paul says about it in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 10. He says, he who descended, he's talking about Jesus, is the one who ascended far above the heavens. But check this out, because this is the most important part. That he might fill all things. Not some of it, not a portion of it, but that he will fill all things. He wants to be that for you. He doesn't want you to live on empty. He doesn't want you to run on fumes. He's saying, I am here. I am here and I want to fill you up. And that leads me to our second action statement. You need to take another step. You need to come up with a plan that allows him to fill you up rather than place that burden on somebody else. Now, some of this is universal. There are things that we all should do to fill us up. And you know the answers. Sunday school them, right? Read our Bibles and we pray. I can tell you that if you do these things, if you draw close to Jesus, he will draw unto you. But listen, I have a real understanding and expectation of what we can handle. I'm not expecting anybody to jump into seven day a week, 30 minutes with the Bible. But man, if three times a week we could grab that book and spend 10 minutes with him, it will do dramatic things to your life. But it's not just about reading the Bible and praying. Those are great places to start. But there are things, there are ways that God made you that are kind of exclusive to you or people like you that aren't for anybody else. For example, like me, I've come to a season where I love to read my Bible. But let me be honest, I wasn't there for a long, long time. But there were other things that God gave me to help me get poured into. I love to be outside. I love to see nature and what God has created and built, and it reminds me of who he is. Jesus uses that to fill me up. I love to listen to worship music. I love music. I love to turn it up and crank it in the car because ain't nobody want to hear that. But when I do that, there's a restoration, something that happens in my soul that can't describe it. And if you come up with a plan, if you find the things that you were created to be filled up with and tap into that, your life will change in a dramatic way. And not only you, but the people around you won't want to go back. So let's take two steps. Let's fire somebody and let's come up with a plan. Because if we do, big time things will happen. Let's pray. Man, Lord, I I just honestly can know of times, even in my life where I was a pastor, where I was just not tapped into you. Because I think the thing... I know I've sat out there. I've only been in ministry for a little over two years, and it's easy to say, yeah, that's, you're a pastor. But there were seasons and moments in my life where, Lord, I just was not filled up by you. There was not the things I was doing to put myself in that situation where I would be filled, and it affected the people around me. It affected my spouse. It affected my children, my relationships. It affected my relationship with you. And the truth is, you want to bring that all full circle. Lord, you want to help us. You wanted to aid me. You wanted to be there for me. Not because you wanted something from me, but you wanted to give me something. And I know you want to give that to every person in this room. So Lord, I pray that every single one of us would go home and think of the thing that we need to fire. Think of the person that we need to let go so that we can receive what you have for it and then come up with a plan to take that step. Pray every single one of us would take time this week to consider what that might be for us. Because if we do, oh baby, man, there's power. There's power when Jesus is the source of your life. 
Lord, I love you so much, and I thank you for what you have taught me during this message. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.